listening to Sidious Playground, a podcast by Leadership Foundations. I get to be the host. I'm Rick Enlow, and I'm here with Dave Hillis from Tacoma, Washington, president of Leadership Foundations. How are you, Dave? Good, Rick. <laughs> you know what? <laughs> that was, that was a, a really that was a really nice introduction. I had a coffee. Okay, just so okay. you know. But okay. uh, <laughs> but listen, this is our kind of a wrap up uh, episode for a topic that we've been talking about for eight episodes now. Mm -hmm. uh, and we're titling it Traditioned Innovation. Can you believe we've done eight of these or seven? Yeah, absolutely. It's been great. It's been a wonderful conversation with you and some of the others. So I've really enjoyed it. Yeah, me too. And, you know, one of the things I thought would be kind of nice is for, uh, you know, whenever you get to the end of something, it's nice to kind of review or recap. And mm -hmm. I started thinking about um, what I've learned. Uh, and and I'm sure there's others who would uh, who would have other uh, points of view and, and they've learned a lot more. But um, I think that uh, one of the things I loved about this whole concept is that it, it kind of came out of um, the, the idea that there are some amazing traditions, mm -hmm. uh, you know, in church history, really, or even in, uh, in history history, and uh, they, they can be innovated upon and they're still incredibly relevant. Yeah, I think that's that's exactly right. And even to maybe even take a half step back further, Rick, for me, I know one of the things that has really sort of captured my imagination around tradition to innovation is the notion that even in the scripture itself, uh, mm -hmm. Jesus seems to hint at the idea that uh, this marvelous thing called the kingdom of God is actually going to be a result of both that which is old and new. Uh, and we mm -hmm. referenced the, you know, the parable in Matthew 13. And it, it really, uh, you know, has reshaped, I think it'd be the best way to say how I understand now uh, the scripture and, and what it is, mm -hmm. you know, bringing forward to us that it's not so much this brand new thing that no one had ever thought about, but rather, you know, uh, almost a repurposing in some ways of some things that were already uh, at play. I think about something like the book of Acts, um, mm -hmm. really uh, is the entire 28 chapters are, you know, innovations based on tradition that, you know, stem out of the Old Testament, out of the life of Jesus, et cetera. So anyways, that's, uh, it's, it's quite fascinating. Yeah, it is. And even having come through uh, the Easter season, if you think about, um, I was, I was thinking about some of the, you know, obviously some of the traditional feasts and, and gatherings mm -hmm. and, um, and the ritual of, of the ancient uh, people. And then how, even in Jesus life, they were shadows of what, what he was participating in. Uh, think about the, uh, you know, day of atonement and some of those, those, you know, those things that there were kind of, um, that's exactly you know, pictures right. of what he fulfilled. And then of course, obviously Passover. And now as we walk toward Pentecost, really interesting as the, uh, the, the real basis of, of our faith is, a uh, is, a, you know, an, an innovation on that tradition. So also, um, one of the things as we apply that to, um, you know, leadership foundations and, and the idea of, uh, God at work in a city mm -hmm. and uh, calling us to join them that the, uh, the idea, is, I think, is counter sort of how we think of or even tell stories about innovation where there was this one guy yep. and uh, he started, you know, uh, you know, building, a, you know, a computer in his garage. And, you know, and, and you know, we kind of have the staggering genius type model. Yeah, that's and right. that's not at all what uh, 
what what tradition teaches us. Yeah, no, I, I think that that's one of the great maybe graces that comes out of this discussion, Rick, that we've had is that it moves something like innovation, you know, out of, of a category that uh, I think is in some ways insulated, you know, itself from the rest of us, right? If you aren't Thomas Alva Edison, you know, Steve Jobs, uh, you know, you need not apply. Mm. And I think what we've tried to uncover here is no, in fact, you know, much of the innovation that, uh, you know, is afoot that we can take advantage of um, already sits out there. And it's just a matter of us, uh, you know, being able to see at times a bit more clearly. Uh, and oftentimes that is looking first back into our history rather than having, you know, some uh, notion that I've got to look out into the future and uh, see mm -hmm. something that's not there. So I, I know for me personally, um, that's been very significant. I don't, you know, consider myself the most creative person in the world at all. Um, but I have been a student of history. And so uh, I think I've come up with some innovative ideas, for example, in the Leadership Foundations. But again, truth be told, it wasn't like I imagined something out of nothing. It was simply reaching back and grabbing a hold of something and saying, wow, I think that could be potentially a good fit for LF in some mm -hmm. new and fresh ways. So yeah, trying to trying to make this whole innovation thing less muscular and maybe a bit more grace-filled. Yeah, and for those who are just joining and maybe are even new to Leadership Foundations, there is a a concept uh, sort of it's it's you know it's all on the website and everything, but it's the wheel of change. It's a description of how, in fact, local leadership foundations maneuver, and really it it reflects that idea that it's not just somebody with some novel idea, but right. this uh, ability to gather uh, many of the traditions in a city you know, that have been disconnected That's and exactly caused right. them to become a collaborative effort. Yeah, in fact, you know, it's, it's, I mean, that's a great comment. And maybe let me digress for a, a moment because mm -hmm. I think it'll kind of get back to the, the wheel of change. But, um, you know, I think it was Aristotle himself, you know, who was not a uh, unthinking man uh, that said, no. you know, the truth be told, uh, there is no uh, genius in the sense that they came up with something out of nothing, right? Mm -hmm. the, the philosophical idea there was that uh, only God or, you know, your, whatever you think God is, is capable of ex nihilo, right? Pulling something out of nothing. Mm -hmm. But then he had to struggle with the fact, but why then are, or why do some people appear to be genius? Um, and what he said is not original thought, but original connection is what marks hmm. quote unquote the genius and hmm. that for me was a <clears throat> was a huge idea rick because again you know i was being held captive a bit by this notion of i've got to come up with an idea um mm -hmm. out of nothing uh when in fact maybe where genius really sits is when things get connected now for the first time that weren't you know uh formally connected yeah well, that became a driver uh, in this wheel of change, right? Because we want our leadership foundations to be innovative, to be creative, to be thinking and loving their cities in new ways. 
Um, well, what the wheel of change does, right, is to begin to help them operationalize that. So when we say engaging leaders of good faith and goodwill, that's not just a, you know, can't we all get along kind of sentiment. Mm -hmm. uh, it's actually, you know, bringing the business community uh, into relationship with the nonprofit community. Um, and thing, when you do that, right, just simply introducing people to one another, talking about the common, you know, uh, vision we all have for the city. Mm -hmm. I mean, innovative, genius-like things begin to happen. You know, when yeah. we talk about building the capacity of others, you know, it's in order to allow that local nonprofit to have a bit more margin, right, in their work uh, to be able to think, to connect with others. You know, when we talk about developing joint initiatives, again, the key word there for us is joint. Um, you know, mm -hmm. you're bringing, you know, the university, you know, together with the scholarship program uh, for kids of first generation. So all of those really stem from this idea of Aristotle's about, yeah, not original thought, but original connection. And the, uh, the wheel of change is what helps us do that. Yeah, yeah. And not only that, but I think I've learned through this process, and especially from you, Dave, the, uh, you know, I've noticed that the tendency is to just try to find people that have all your same, you know, mm -hmm. bias, uh, you know, your same outlook. And instead of saying, look, um, this idea of walking into what you know is attention yeah. and then holding it, you know, because we kind of wanted to, uh, or I guess we kind of pretend that we can just kind of weed everything out and just hold the one thing that's the thing, you know. But if you're willing right. to say, look, like, uh, you know, not everybody at the table, uh, you know, is going to see things, you know, the way, but that is, that is the process. Um, and that is actually a, a, an innovation on tradition, which traditionally it just, you know, just find people, you know, as close to you as you could find and sit at a table with them. Right. That's, that's exactly right. And I mean, I, you know, again, digressing here a bit, but I would argue that one of the real uh, victims in this polarization, you know, of our world, um, you know, where, I mean, you, you are tarred and feathered, right? If you leave your, you know, your group um, is, is innovation, right? We've become a less innovative country, uh, a less innovative, you know, really, you know, world because we mm -hmm. don't have, you know, people, you know, very different from one another talking together, which would naturally produce this, this idea of, again, you know, the original kind of connection that uh, Aristotle talked about. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that when you understand, or, I mean, leadership is the ability to facilitate that, you That's know, right. I mean, to, to, to be together and, uh, and have huge diversity, uh, even in terms of, uh, where we're at in the world. That's where I think leadership foundations, uh, Part of the innovation is the concept that, hey, every city is unique, but at the same time, um, we have a lot to learn from each other. And if we just think the only people who get this city are people in this city, yeah. man, are we going to miss, you know, the innovative yeah. in the process? <clears throat> yeah, I, uh, <clears throat> excuse me. You know, I think your notion of leadership um, is exactly right. And, you know, it's, the leadership that really is in service of the city, um, recognizing this idea of Aristotle's is then, you know, constantly trying to figure out how do I bring 
these two groups, these two individuals, you know, these five groups together. Um, mm -hmm. Because what's what's at stake again is not just you know kind of harmonious living. I mean, we we want that. That that would be nice if people could be nicer to one another. But much more fundamentally, it's that it's going to be in those meetings that the kind of ideas and initiatives will be created that can actually move the needle, you know, in the city on that issue. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think that's probably the, one of the things I'm you know, most proud about, Rick. I think when I think about the LF footprint around the world <clears throat> is this remarkable sort of resume of bringing disparate parts of a city together. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's really a marvel to behold. And it's, it's interesting that for someone to even appreciate something that's old is actually innovative, <laughs> you know, because we get so used to right, you right. Know, that it's, it's gotta be something, you know, un, you know, unprecedented brand new. So that's amazing. Now, now for those who don't have the deep Catholic connection, which, uh, I, you know, I, I don't, but I hang with people who do. Okay. But, um, really Ignatius, let's see if I even get this, see if I'm even close on this guy. But, but I, right. my understanding is that obviously there was a, um, the concept of uh, really drawing close to God meant to draw away from, you know, kind of mm -hmm. everyday life. And, and that's, that's where right. the monastic tradition came from. And, and God bless the, the you know, I've been with you uh, to, to, you know, to some of those um, communities that, you know, I'm so thankful for because they're praying for us, you yeah. know, for the world five times a day. But, but yeah. then Ignatius comes along and says, well, you know, Hey, you know, love you guys, but um, you know, this is what I'm going to be about. And at that time that was like, you know, you gotta be crazy. Are you, you're, what are you doing? You know? Yeah. I mean, um, yeah. Rick, I mean, you just passed the quiz. You're, uh, <laughs> yes. you're, yes. you're good to go. I'm so close. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, there, yeah. So let me maybe start this way and say, you know, prior to kind of my, my Catholic sense of things, Rick, um, you know, I was involved with Presbyterian church here in Tacoma mm -hmm. and uh, I might've shared this before, but I would be sitting in these meetings and I'd listen to people trying to wrestle over what they felt like were these almost intractable problems. And I would sit there and go, you know, actually we sort of solved that in the fourth century, um, but, but people had no knowledge of it. So we created out of that a Sunday school class called Falling in Love with Dead Christians. And essentially the, uh, the, the litmus test for what we would study is someone had to have you know, written something and died. You know, that was that was the extent of it. I would say greatest greatest title for a Sunday school class ever. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was it was fun to do because you you know we would grab a hold of something like you know the Donatist controversy in the you know fifth century, uh, which you know raised the question about can a uh, you know sort of sideways religious or holy person taint the sacrament and mm -hmm. the you know the church really wrestled with that uh and thankfully by the way answered it and said no you know the sacrament stands unto itself and so while there will be bad pastors bad re religious leaders uh they can't you know uh in any way uh, ill effect you know the sacrament 
Well, that's got yeah. that's got huge ramifications for us today, right? As we think and relate to people, and you know, try to somehow come to you know grips with some of the things that are taking place. So, anyways, that's all an aside. But Ignatius has always fascinated me um, because I think you could argue, uh, and of course, we're going to have our Catholic listeners here probably uh, light us up with, uh, "No, that's completely wrong." But I, I'm going to make the statement that that. He is the chief innovator uh, within the history of of the Catholic Church. Uh, you know, the thing you just mentioned, of course, is completely true, that he took the whole idea of what it meant to be a religious, uh, that it wasn't just a cloistered reality, but was something that could actually be done, you know, out kind of in the open road. Um, you know, this wonderful kind of notion of, that they were contemplatives in action, right? They they had mm-hmm. to get out and to go, but he, you know, he changed the the whole prayer calendar. I mean, moving from like you said, the five times a day that that still to this day Benedictines, you know, will will participate in. And for Ignatius, it was twice, you know, for fifteen minutes. Um, there's this wonderful, funny story that Ignatius, while he was alive, uh, had gotten word that there was a particular Jesuit in Spain who was spending uh, a lot of time in prayer, Um, right? And and who can argue (laughs) against that? But Ignatius (laughs) wrote uh, a letter to him and said, uh, you know, I essentially heard that you're spending a lot of time in prayer, uh, wonderful, but that's not the Jesuit way. you know, two 15-minute prayers ought to suffice. If you need more, perhaps you should look for a different religious order. <laughs> I thought, <laughs> now that is an innovation. Um, you know, uh, we'll talk a bit about this, but, you know, the way of proceeding, um, just this this really remarkable sense uh, that context and culture, you know, shape uh, how the gospel is going to take root. And Ignatius was way ahead of his time, uh, you know, mm-hmm. being able to understand that. So again, we could go keep going down uh, the list, but uh, just a just a remarkable, you know, remarkable um, innovator. And again, largely because he, uh, he kept a foot in the tradition of the church. Yeah, and I think the, I mean, I, I've i kind of identified, um, you know, Ignatius himself as kind of the Swiss army knife of, you know, urban ministry. I mean, he, <laughs> like he, you know, I mean, he uh, was, he, he had like all kinds of, uh, you know, ability to apply, uh, you know, what, what he was about in, in a, you know, real life situation. But, but one yeah. of the things about, um, um, and obviously the, uh, um, you know, reminders of who, you know, he is in history are all around us, you know, um, totally. but one of the things I think that is, I, I'd see if I get this part right. But one of the things that I, I think we take away from him, uh, when we talk about a way of proceeding and all is that, um, whenever we come into attention, like in our world, like, um, um, you know, this idea of, you know, uh, personal conscience versus, you know, collective obedience the idea yeah. of i mean it could even you know in our in our era i'd love to talk to him about the mask or not the mask you know things like you know things where <laughs> everything's just a tension you know it's a big tension and i think what has uh, traditionally been the case is that you'd say well the answer to this tension or this kind of dilemma 
is uh, uh, is something old. You know, that's that's the answer. It's we got to you know uh, conser- go conservative in the sense that we have to go back and you know and recapture what we lost or something. Yeah. And then you know then others would say no no the answer is in something brand new. You know some some way right. of proceeding that is unique. And you know the, the whole idea of tradition innovation is like the answer is uh, you know yes and. That's right. I mean, it's not, it's not just this or that. And that's what I think makes it powerful. That's exactly right. Yep. You, I think captured it again, you know, beautifully. And, uh, you know, again, it's, you, you made the comment about him being the uh, Swiss army knife, which is wonderful. Um, I suspect that, uh, Ignatius just chuckled in heaven, uh, (laughs) thinking about that description. But, you know, he was, you know, again, the first really to take a whole order and and steer it towards the urbanization of the world. You know, again, this was mm-hmm. in, you know, the 1500s. Yeah. Um, and so, but, but he did so in, you know, large part because he had such a deep sense, you know, of the, uh, the history of the church and... Uh, what she could mean uh, for people who are now gathering in a in a bit of a different space. So it's uh, it's I, I've I've said this to you before, Rick. Of course, that I you know go back time and time again to uh, Chris Lowney's book um, and uh, titled "Heroic Leadership," but it's essentially a study of the Jesuits, um, and I have just found it to be almost my you know, blueprint of sorts when I think about mm-hmm. leadership foundations and what we're trying to do. Um, so there has been on occasion, somebody who's unfamiliar with the Jesuits or Ignatius and they see something Elif is doing and they say, wow, that that's really remarkable. And there's always a part of me that, you know, wants to just get down on my knees and say, Hey, do you have an hour so I can explain all of who the Jesuits are? Because all I'm doing is grabbing a hold of stuff that they did and putting it into a new context. Yeah. And in, in our, uh, sort of in, in the modern era, especially it, like at a university, um, that's been all the rage because we call it interdisciplinary studies now, you know, so right. instead of uh, <laughs> taking a particular discipline and drilling down, we're saying now, wait a minute, what about um, looking at whatever it is that we're about from uh, the point of view of all the disciplines so that we could say, you know, what is the psychological reality, the mm-hmm. economic reality, you know, mm-hmm. what is the, you know, the philosophic reality and, and how much those different and sometimes things that are completely diverse, but how much they inform what's happening. I see that as the LF way that, uh, you know, by way of Ignatius. Yeah. I mean, I love that. And, you know, this is one of the reasons why, you know, uh, back in the, you know, medieval times, uh, the study of theology was called the queen of science, of the sciences. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it wasn't because people were more religious, you know, necessarily, but it was because they understood that theology touches on all of the things you just mentioned, right? If if you're going to do theology well, you're going to have to think about sociology. You know, if you're going to do theology well, you've got to think about the economics of it. And so, Sadly, what, what's happened to theology, of course, is it's gotten narrower and narrower, where it, it almost, in effect, is simply tools to defend the creed. Uh, and, you know, I'm not against yeah. defending a creed on occasion, but it has lost, um, sadly for me, a, a lot of what really used to be, you know, the work of theologians, which is 
yeah, how does all this stuff get connected, right? How does it all yeah, work yeah. together? So you're you're exactly right. Well, that's what I think is so great. I think any uh, local leadership foundation, if someone asks them, what are you doing? I think they could say, um, I work in theology. And then if they say, tell me about that, they would say, we have youth mentoring. We have, uh, you know, we're, we're doing all kinds of, you know, these practices, the outreach, the things that we're doing, we're, we're, you know, helping people. I mean, that that's what it's about. I mean, even when Paul says, you know, hey, you know, here's here's the good stuff. You know, here here's, if you want to be a great theologian, uh, you know, widows in need, you know, orphans, <laughs> he was saying, you know, right. it's, it's stagnation. It's not, it's not so much, uh, you know, some uh, up in the cloud thing. Now, one of the things let's, let's bring this down to earth a little bit here, Dave, just, just like, this is me just inventing, um, you know, a real practical uh, application, but I think it, I think you can, you know, see how we could apply this, but right now uh, in our world, at least our part of the world. And I think even globally, because of what we saw the last year, um, you know, we're in the middle of a really important um, court case that's that's uh, you know about uh, racism, you mm-hmm. know, and and not only you know the the treatment of an individual, but also the systemic you know uh, back backdrop and and everything. And uh, in in some ways, I think that there are people who would say, "Well, I sure hope the people of color can work it out." You know, like, mm-hmm. you know, uh, I guess their community has, has, you know, and, and there's, there's kind of a, an idea that somehow, you know, we don't need to collaborate on that because, you know, that's just a particular community's issue. Right. And I, I see how LF has, uh, you know, will not accept that. And, and that's the reason that there, that we can make a difference together. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I, I mean, there there is that issue for sure, um, you know. And of course, uh, when you do take that wider look around the world, um, you know, the injustices just continue to you know to pile up, and mm-hmm. at times it can it can be overwhelming. the The unique place that LF plays in that, though, I, I think, is this because when an injustice takes place, there's certainly and rightly, you know, I think is the prophet uh, that gets raised up that, you know, rallies against this injustice, right? And tries sure. to bring a kind of light on it. Um, <clears throat> the, you know, oftentimes that energy though <clears throat> is short-lived, um, right? I mean, once once the, you know, the injustice passes, you know, uh, we go right back to normal. So LF tries to step into that and hold the hand, I think, of the prophet, right? And say, you're absolutely right and correct on this. In order though, to get change, you know, as it relates to this issue, we've got to also work, you know, with what, you know, I would kind of describe, you know, as as the settler, you know, the, the person who's sitting in the system itself. Um, mm-hmm. And you can't, it's so easy to want to say, you know, well, there's the bad people um, and we're the good people uh, when in fact, you know, things are a bit more complex than that. And so how do you yeah. sit in our cities, um, bring disparate, you know, sides to the table, um, name the issue? Absolutely. Don't don't gloss over that, but somehow protect that table uh, in a way that, again, you can begin to think creatively about, well, then what changes might we make? 
And this right. is where, you know, something like, you know, <clears throat> again, I, I get the emotion of it, but a statement about, well, we just, the answer here is to get rid of the police force, um, you know, or, you know, the answer here is to, you know, get rid of, of this, you know, group. And it's like, no, uh, actually it's, it's going to take a bit more than that. And, and, and somehow the answer, whatever the answer might be, is going to be, you know, sitting together at that table, sometimes with diametrically opposed ideas, you know, emotions, mm -hmm. perspectives, uh, and don't leave the table because it's going to be in that table that the innovative idea is going to come up that will actually, you know, allow us to deal with something as horrific uh, and heinous as, you know, uh, the racial injustice that's taking place. Yeah, yeah, that's good. I, I think that even some people wouldn't necessarily know this, but many who listen are, you know, uh, LF leaders and even the, you know, the continued prayer emphasis that we get if, if you're on the, you know, sort of the email link, um, you, you see that um, there are people who are willing to sit in the seat yeah. of, uh, you know, in prayer of the person who was, who was wronged or even in, in the seat of the person who was, you know, was involved in the injustice as a perpetrator. Yeah, and, right. and you think, wait a minute, like, you're not, what, what are you doing? You know, like you're, you know, exactly. you're not even a person of color or you're not even there or you haven't experienced this. But I think when you're willing to say, listen, um, part of, um, part of even a prayer tradition that can be innovated, uh, is to, to say, look, um, you know, we're gonna, you know, actually in our own private lives, take different postures and, and we find ourselves confessing. We find ourselves, you know, repenting. We find ourselves, you know, asking for provision. And to me, yeah. um, those are all um, reflective of this, you know, tradition innovation. And again, following in the footsteps of uh, not only the, you know, the way of proceeding, but um, uh, some of the other great things. We I think about, uh, um, you know, Richard uh, Beck. Beck. Yeah. Mm -hmm. in, in the little way, right? The little, mm -hmm. what was that? Yeah, the little way. Yeah, yeah, that was another really helpful uh, idea. So we got to once again remember that's part of this series. And so, in case you missed any of Richard Beck's uh, work, I, I, I just finished Stranger God, and and now my kids are all reading it. So oh, it's like a huge gift, huge gift to our family. Yeah, <laughs> wonderful. Yeah, wonderful. so that's great. Well, yeah. anything else you want to you want to say to just kind of sum up, um, and you know, put a bow on our uh, tradition innovation series. Well, I, I think just maybe again make clear to everybody that this this idea that we started with <clears throat> with regard to aristotle the the notion that, that it's not original thought um it's original mm -hmm. connection and it's going to be you know in that original connection right bringing that uncle of yours uh together uh you know with that uh aunt of yours uh and even though they haven't talked in 40 years, which is where, you know, the actual innovation is going to begin to uh, come from. And I think my final thought then would be, you know, if that's true, you know, another innovation was when Jesus, of course, was asked uh, by his disciples, hey, why don't you, you know, essentially pray like the others? Um, and Jesus says, well, you know, <clears throat> we pray, but when you pray, pray like this. And of course, the Lord's Prayer comes out, 
one of the really curious things about that, Rick, is if you ask the question, what is Rick Enloe's responsibility in that prayer? <clears throat> You'll come to recognize quickly there's only one thing you're asked to do, right? You're not asked to concern yourself with your daily bread. You're not asked to concern yourself with the kingdom of God because it's already happening, right, in heaven. Now we just want it to come down on earth. The one thing you're asked to do is to forgive, mm -hmm. right? As you've already been forgiven. Yeah, as if it's, that that's the tradition. <laughs> exactly. You forgiving is the innovation. <laughs> that's, that's exactly, that's exactly right. And so I think about that a lot. I think about, you know, again, we come back to this time and time again, but what would probably unleash a kind of innovation, you know, in a family, in a church, in an organization, in a world, is simply let's learn how in really, really concrete ways to forgive one another. Mm -hmm. Because in that very act, then we can now come back together again. And again, going back to Aristotle, it means here now is an original, you know, connection. Um, and mm -hmm. that's and that's where the innovation will come from. So yeah. that'd just be the yeah. final thought. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Well, I mean, Jesus did, you know, uh, when he was on final approach, he prayed that we'd be one, is he and the father one, you know, that's, that's, exactly that's, right. that's how it started and that's where it's headed. So, well, yep. thanks for all this great time. And, uh, you know, Dave, at the end of our podcast, we like to have a recommendation, which is just an idea. Uh, it could be, uh, something to read, something to watch, something to think about that helps us again, see more clearly the city as a playground and open our eyes to, uh, to what God sees in these cities that he's placed us in. And uh, this this uh, particular episode in our finale here of this series, we've got a great recommendation from uh, Courtney Dugstead, who's the executive director of Next Chapter, the Leadership Foundation of Rochester, Minnesota. And she's simply going to read a poem for us. And that's uh, yeah. it's going to be the way we'll cap off this uh, final episode, episode eight in the series of Tradition to Innovation. So let's uh, check out that. Wonderful. So here's Carl Sandburg. They tell me that you are wicked and I believe them for I have seen your painted women under the gas lamps luring the farm boys. They tell me you are crooked and I answer, yes, it is true. I have seen the gunmen kill and go free to kill again. They tell me you are brutal and my reply is on the faces of women and children, I have seen the marks of wanton hunger. And having answered so, I turn once more to those who sneer at this, my city, and I give them back the sneer and I say to them, come and show me another city with lifted head singing so proud to be alive and coarse and strong and cunning. And I love that poem because I think all of our cities have challenges. All of our cities have battlegrounds. But if we can start to love our city, even when it's a battleground and, and become um, protective of our city in the way that Carl was with Chicago, like show me another city that has all these challenges and yet still has hope. I think that's like, that gets me jazzed. That really gets me jazzed.
Well, special thanks to Courtney for uh, mm-hmm. the reading of that incredible Carl Sandburg poem, Chicago. Um, always, always a classic. Yep, absolutely. <clears throat> well, thanks, Dave, once again for uh, a great series and a great episode. And uh, I look forward to uh, next time we get together on City as Playground. You too, Rick. Thank you. All right. Okay. Blessing. Okay.